Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Hey everybody, Jay Farner here, CEO of Rocket Mortgage and Rocket Companies. Last year, we saw historically low mortgage interest rates. In fact, over 1 million homeowners took advantage of refinancing or buying a new home with Rocket Mortgage. What you may not know is that interest rates are already starting to increase again. And it's likely that trend is only going to continue. Our team of experts is standing by to help you save before rates go up. With an official mortgage review from Rocket Mortgage, you'll see just how much money you could save by making a move right now. Don't look back over these next few weeks and wish that you had taken action. You could save hundreds on your mortgage payments or pay off your home loan earlier than planned. You could even take cash out of your home to pay off high-interest debt, complete home repairs, or bulk up on an emergency fund. When you want to secure a low rate, Rocket can. Call 833-8-ROCKET or visit rocketmortgage.com. Rocket. Call for cost information and conditions equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states and MLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of February 24th, 2020. The Chicago White Sox have officially played a spring training game. They won 7-2 on Sunday against the Cincinnati Reds, but unfortunately, it wasn't streamed. So most of us haven't seen the White Sox in action so far at spring training, but the good news is this upcoming week, there will actually be streams available. Some games will be available on NBC Sports Chicago, so we'll actually be able to watch the White Sox in action. We'll start breaking down those games on next week's podcast. But this week, we are continuing our 2020 position previews with a look at the catching position, first base, and second base. At the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. But we start this week's show with some contract extension news. As left-handed reliever Aaron Bummer and super utility Louis Garcia inked new deals. And joining me now to break those signings down 
is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I guess Aaron Bummer is sticking around for a bit. Unless he's Sergio Santos. Unless he is Sergio Santos. What a call out that was reading your column. Uh, <laughs> breaking the, uh, his new contract down. Uh, Mike McDougal was listed in there. Oh, yeah. Some some good names to be compared to. And I still remember everybody who was involved in those trades. Who was involved in the Mike McDougal trade? That was Tyler Lumsden and Dan Cortez. Yeah, I would have failed that sporacle. Why do you remember that? I don't know. All right. And Sergio Santos was Nestor Molina, and Matt Thornton was uh, Brandon Jacobs. See, I remember Matt Thorne, and I remember Sergio Santos. Did Santos ever pitch for the Blue Jays? He did. He uh, had, like, one good half season after Tommy John surgery. Oh, that's right. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, fell off the rails again. But, yeah, he, he at least delivered something for them, But whereas Molina didn't. But, yeah, just, like, for some reason, just like, yeah, I still remember those deals. And part of it was that I did write about that lineage when Nate Jones signed his contract. And I guess we can get into that. Like uh, I was reading what I wrote about Nate Jones back on Southside Sox when he signed his contract extension in 2015. And it was kind of the same thing, just like, wow, you know, they, they White Sox just kind of sign these deals when uh, uh, they don't want to uh, kind of get cornered in by uh, potential arbitration raises because of saves. And also the guys who are signing it have a you know, reason why they want to lock down some money. So uh, Aaron Bummer is not quite as severe in either of those cases, but uh, there are some similar traits. And for those that don't know the full breakdown for Aaron Bummer, he's going to make a million dollars this season. So a little pay bump for him next year. It'll be 2 million, 2022, two and a half million, 2023, 3.75 million, and in 2024, it's five and a half million. After the 2024 season, there are two club options for the 2025 and 2026 seasons, in which his pay will get increased over seven million dollars. And I know we mentioned a bunch of reliever names. You just mentioned Nate Jones, and you know we mentioned Matt Thorne, Sergio Santos, Mike McDougal. All these relievers got contract extensions. What I find this situation with Aaron Bummer, Jim, is unprecedented, is the amount of years. I mean, there's a difference signing a reliever to a two-year or three-year contract. This is a five-year contract, obviously buys out the ARB years, that could possibly be seven years. And we typically don't hear that for relievers uh, in Major League Baseball having that type of job security. Uh, especially when the league is having difficulties with relievers not being consistent year to year. If Bummer becomes just as good, let's say, as Drew Pomerantz, the White Sox did well here because Pomerantz signed a four-year, $34 million contract. And if Bummer becomes as good as Will Smith, well, that's even better because Will Smith signed for three years, $42 million. So with the White Sox signing this extension with Aaron Bummer, they're going to get quite the cost savings. But my only concern with this type of contract, Jim, is the recent injuries and lack of consistency out of the bullpen arms from the White Sox from saying that this is a great idea. I think it's a good idea. I don't think it's a great idea. And I'm just right now, I'm hopeful that the White Sox get a lot more innings out of Bummer with this deal than they got with Nate Jones. Yeah, I would say it's a it's a great idea. Um, just like when you try to do the pros and cons, like there are a lot of pros and the cons are really minimal. The cons are just like, oh, you might have to pay him 
a marginal amount of money for a bit longer than you'd like, but it really shouldn't get in the way of anything when it comes to trying to build a bullpen in case, like, you know, the worst case scenario or anything else. It's not a salary that'll get in the way and maybe can even be moved if, uh, you know, another team wants to pick him up because even if he isn't, you know, the second coming of Zach Britton and is just kind of an ordinary reliever, you know, he still has the, uh, I guess, track record of excellence or at least, you know, uh, the, the uh, past where he was excellent for a season. And the salary is still, you know, within reason. So, you know, he could probably be moved for a team that could use him or uh, has the space and or has an idea. But uh, so I'd call it like a great idea. I would just say when it comes to relievers that uh, the upside is, you know, could be fleeting for no good reason. Like I'm thinking like Jace Fry last year, like Jace Fry was the Aaron mm-hmm. Bummer of 2018. And he had that curveball and he's able to drop it in at any point, especially to start off counts was lethal against lefties and, uh, you know, just you know, held his own against righties too, to where he was very useful weapon, especially against certain lineups. And then, you know, a year later, can't really find the strike zone, uh, curveball. He really can't uh, locate it. Lefties are even getting on base at a 350 clip and there's just not much to like. So, you know, it can disappear and then you're left with, well, that was a, uh, <laughs> that was a phase, but, uh, so uh, that's that's the reason why it's like a great idea, but the impact could be limited because um, he wasn't going to get paid a whole lot anyway, unless he started saving a ton of games. And when you look at his arsenal, uh, I still think the ideal closer misses bats just so you don't have to worry about bad luck, uh, just <laughs> uh, blowing uh, uh, multiple saves in a week and just uh, putting you in a bad mood. So that's why I think he's probably more of a setup guy if the White Sox really can line it up the way they want to. But, you know, ultimately, uh, it's a good to great idea, and there's no reason not to do it. And for Bummer, given that, uh, you know, we're his origin story, 19th round draft pick, and Tommy John surgery, and uh, kind of looked like his career might have been a non-starter, and then all of a sudden, quick rise and some some bumps in the majors. May as well lock in that money because, uh, you know, who could have guessed that he would have ever gotten it when he was drafted where he was. The only part I would disagree with you is the whole not saving games because if the White Sox want to be tricky with the money, if they want to be cute next year, let's say that Rick Hahn, the the line has been drawn. It's a $130 million payroll that he's got to work with because that's the parameters that Jerry Reinstorf, I know you hated Jim. We got to live in reality. Okay. So I, <laughs> I already reject your premise, but go ahead. I, I know you reject it because you hate it. <laughs> not that it's not, not based in fact you just hate you just hate it but i'm just saying like if they let alex colomay walk and you have bummer be your closer next year well there you go you just shaved eight million dollars off the payroll that you can allocate elsewhere well i think that's an extra benefit if Aaron Bummer is good in 2020. Well, I think ideally, you know, even if it's just a cheaper closer like Tyler Johnson or Ian Hamilton or somebody internal steps up for sure, a, even more money yeah. saved. Yep. So I think ideally they'd like a, a strikeout oriented guy, but yeah, if their if their payroll uh, limit is 130 million after rebuilding year after a winning or like after the rebuild starts to turn into winning seasons and you've saved all that money all along and the tenants starting to rise and you're getting more money from the TV deal because the Cubs are out of it. Uh, and you re-sign Jose Abreu for that contract, and he's the reason why, like, you know, he's one of the reasons why you can't go above 130 and can't add uh, impact players, then, yeah, it's just, uh, it is fatally flawed. So that's why I think, like, there's got to be more. I mean, what's the, the median payroll is 150-something? 
141. 141, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. You said median. Yeah. The average and median are different. Average is 141. I think median, you are correct, it's in the 150. Yeah, so they should be able to get to 150, I think, at the end of this year, assuming it's not like a complete disaster where, like, they're, uh, like, for every reason, just there's no magic bullet signing that can actually solve all their problems. But I, I don't see that being the case. So, yeah, they should be able to get to 150. And I could see this being, like, uh, still kind of gathering a, a major league roster and figuring out where your you know, farm depth is and everything like that. But I think 150 by next year should be the expectation. So am I off base if I use P. Knowles' grading scale for his offseason grades, right? And how he determines A, B, C, D, and F. I think I'm in the C plus B minus grade for this contract extension with Aaron Bummer because why I keep circling back to Jim and again it, it is a it's in between good and great idea for the White Sox to do this. Is it necessary though? Is it necessary to sign this deal with Aaron Bummer even though he's had one good year? That that's kind of where I question it. But again, the White Sox have been signing contract extensions with Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert, and they haven't even played a game yet. And I think those are great ideas. So I'm just being hypocritical at the moment uh, when it comes to Aaron Bummer. Maybe it's just because I don't trust relievers anymore. No, I get where you're coming from. And uh, yeah, I I think there is a chance that it could look foolish the way like Nate Jones's contract while it was, you know, it, it looked team friendly. It just mm-hmm. really wasn't because he wasn't available enough to really make it work, aside from one you know decent season after uh, the, the Tommy John slash uh, microdisectomy he had in his back, where that uh, derailed his career and just really didn't bounce back from that in a meaningful way. Uh, I could see Bummer running into the same thing, where just all of a sudden, like, oh yeah, that was a that was a waste. But uh, I, I think just should you know something happen with Colomade where he's not the guy you want in the ninth inning. It does free everybody up to just let Bummer get the outs he needs to get without worrying about like him running into an Addison Reed situation or a Bobby Jenks situation where their mm. salary just escalates uh, because of saves and all of a sudden just doesn't make sense to keep him around. That's a good point. So instead of looking at a White Sox perspective, I know you touched on this, but looking from the prism of Aaron Bummer and his family, congrats to the guy. I mean, when you're a 19th rounder coming out of Nebraska – and everyone says that you're a reliever being drafted and you come up through the minor leagues. And when you're 19th rounder, you're just hoping to get a cup of coffee in the major leagues. And now you have this financial security. You're going to be with the White Sox for the next five years, maybe unless you get traded. But you got a major league contract for the next five years. You're getting $17 million and you got a chance for that to increase another $14-plus million. Congrats to Aaron Bummer. And his family. That That's quite the journey. And uh, I'm happy for them that he's able to get this type of contract done. And uh, he's going to be around with the White Sox. I just hope that he is successful in 2020 and makes the White Sox look super smart for signing this contract extension as the other reliever extensions uh, mixed results on how that worked out for the White Sox. Both as far as with injury, a lot of it had to do with injury. So hopefully we don't have to talk about that with Aaron Bummer because I'm I'm done talking about bullpen arms getting hurt all the time after uh, last year, whether Tommy John or fluke injuries like Ian Hamilton. So um, we'll talk about the Lurie Garcia, though, his new contract later in the show when we preview the second baseman. But speaking of preview, let's continue our 2020 
position preview. So we talked about the starting pitching staff a couple weeks ago in the show. Last week, we talked a lot about Aaron Bummer and the White Sox bullpen with Patrick Nolan Penals. Now we're going to talk about the actual position players. And let's start behind home plate at the catching position. In 2019, we saw James McCann have a breakout year. He made the All-Star game. He had 273, had a 328 on base percentage, and he slugged 460 with a 109 weighted runs creative plus. He was 9% better than league average, and he was worth 2.3 war on fan graphs. Perhaps his best season ever in his career. But he was only worth one war on baseball prospectus because his framing was really poor. One of the worst in baseball. And instead of gambling to see if McCann could duplicate his offensive output again, the Chicago White Sox signed Yasmani Grandal. Well, last year, the White Sox catchers behind James McCann were not good. And because they were not good, they dropped the White Sox position ranking to 20th overall in baseball in terms of war, according to Fangraphs. Who was first? The Milwaukee Brewers with Yasmani Grandal. We should see a big boost in production for the White Sox at the catcher position. So, Jim, let's start with the star free agent signing. We've spoken a lot about Grandal already this offseason. We are very excited to see him in action. But Zips and Bakota released their projections. You can now see the full Zips projections on Fangraphs.com. And both projection systems believe that Yasmani Grandal will be a top 10 position player in terms of war in all of Major League Baseball this season. Do you buy that? I can, just based on what we know from framing, uh, just the, the value of those metrics and everything, and, and, the, and the impact of a good framer on a pitching staff. Um, yeah, so I can see that. I can see framing skeptics or fans who just are not uh, versed in it, not buying it. You know, if, if uh, say... You know, Grandall is batting 240 with 350 on base percentage, 20 something homers, good framing, but like he, he might not feel like it. And it's not a battle I really want to uh, wage. <laughs> I think I'll just be happy accepting it myself and being, you know, maybe on the quiet side. I think perhaps if he can, you know, say like, you know, if the framing's good, but if, if the framing's good and you're seeing documentable improvements from either Keuchel from his last year or Ronaldo Lopez or Dylan Cease, you're seeing strides from like two of those three guys, along with Giolito still being good. Uh, and then, you know, Gio Gonzalez, whatever ha- happens with him and Kopech in terms of their health and such. But I think at least two of those three guys where you have like a, a rotation that's more than half full and Grandal is a, a reason why and, and, and traceable. You can see it in the numbers. You can see it in the anecdotes, everything, uh, you know, whether you care about the numbers or where you ca- care about like how pitchers present the information Either way, you know, if there's a big staff turnaround, I can see everybody being uh, on the same page where Grandal is top 10 just because White Sox fans have seen, you know, maybe if they didn't even realize it, like that catchers were uh, contributed to starting pitching problems. They have seen bad enough starting pitching recently to uh, to know that there's a way Grandal might be helping. Do you want to guess the last White Sox position player? that finished in the top 10 in war. Hmm. This is a great trivia question for those that are listening during your, during your commute. Again, the trivia question is who is the last white Sox position player to finish in the top 10 in all of major league baseball in war. Jermaine die. No Albert bell. 
1998. Wow. Some of you who are listening to this right now in your lifetime have never seen a White Sox position player finish in the top 10 in war. And some of you listening to this have kids that are now drinking age. <laughs> That's how long it's been since the White Sox have had a top 10 position player. The last one to be close was Adam Eaton in 2016 when he had his six plus war season. He was in the top 15 for, for position players. But again, Zips has Yasmani Grandal as the 10th best projected player in all of Major League Baseball in terms of war. And Bakota has Grandal fifth. If he hits those numbers, Jim, is it good enough to get him on the podium for the American League MVP voting? I'm not saying he'll win because Mike Trout's Mike Trout, but could we see him as a possible dark horse MVP candidate if he can hit well and if he can turn around the White Sox pitching staff? Are we at the point in Major League Baseball today with the media that they will factor all those aspects of his game and get him some MVP votes? Uh, depends, I think, with catchers. Depends how many games he catches, uh, how much they divide the workload up between you know, him and James McCann. Uh, if it, the counting stats are limited just because he's only playing like 120 games versus the 150 by other candidates, then I can see him just not quite measuring up and uh, being you know top three. But I can't see him being, you know, if he's that kind of presence on the wins above replacement list. I think there are enough uh, saber savvy voters that would give him at least uh, votes. It wouldn't be like a Yohan Mankata situation where he gets one <laughs> just from uh, James Fegan. I think he would get enough recognition, especially if the White Sox are winning and especially if the pitching staff is a story. How many games do you think would be a good benchmark for Yasmani Grandal to play for the White Sox in 2020? I think 120. Um, he probably would want to catch more or be involved in more, but if they have a good backup catcher, uh, and I think McCann qualifies as that, and he's getting into his 30s, and they have him for four years, they kind of have to think of the long game here. Uh, I wouldn't want to see them go nuts and like try to get 130, 140 when they have a long way to go, and both in terms of uh, Grandal's contract and also just the role he's supposed to play on a uh, rebuilding or, or a team that's still building you know they're past rebuilding now they're now they're just building up to be projectable into the high 80s versus the low 80s so when buster po is buster posey the last catcher to win the mvp i'm and now i'm thinking about this when i've asked a question about grandal's chances of being a dark horse mvp candidate yeah posey won it in 2012 oh my god he caught 148 games yeah Oh, my Lord. And that was after he tore his ACL in 2011. The Buster Posey rule. Yep. We talked about that a lot. Yeah. Wow. That is a, that's a lot of games. Wow. I'm surprised he could still catch. Uh, actually, it was 114 games. He caught 29 games at first base, and he had three games as DH, and he had five games. He appeared as a pinch hitter. But, yeah, 114 games he started, 121 games he started in 2013, and then 123 in 2016. And I don't know if JT Real Muto is even a good comparison as far as a dark horse MVP candidate. So if you say Grandal, 
plays 120 games. I I have to think that a lot of those are still behind home plate as catcher and not so many starts at DH. We'll get to that in a moment when we talk about the first baseman. So you have a good benchmark for Yasmani Grandal at 120 games. I think some people, some White Sox fans would want to see more, but again, the rotation, there's, there's enough good talent to go around now these days that the White Sox, as Jim said, can play the long game with Grandal and kind of save them up, especially if they are in postseason contention. So if Grandal is playing 120 games, is 40 games okay for James McCann, Jim? Or how often do you think he's going to play in 2020? Yeah, more or less. That's kind of, I'm thinking like 40, uh, yeah, I would say 40 starts is probably low when you, when you mentioned that way, just because of how well he played last year, it seems like an insult. And especially, you know, he's going to free agency next year. You don't want to take all the playing time away from him. But, you know, if you look at the, uh, you know, Grandall's production and, and, and I, I think McCann's playing time was that he had a path to more before Edwin Encarnacion showed up because then you could picture Grandall at first base, uh, McCann getting the starts when they want to give a Brayo breather and so forth. But I think for the time being, I guess, you know, we'll mention this when we get to first base. I'm a little bit bearish on Encarnacion being a, a season-long proposition, so maybe that's how McCann gets more involved is by uh, an injury at first base, uh, you know, one of the two. Uh, but for the time being, I think, you know, should everybody be healthy and productive, then it seems like McCann does draw the short straw. Yeah, James McCann has, it appeared in more than 100 games five straight years, and that is in serious jeopardy. Yeah. I, I'm kind of curious, though, because, you know, thinking about it and kind of thinking along the lines of, like, you know, Tyler Flowers, too, when he was with the White Sox and, uh, you know, the battle between his framing and just his tough-to-watchness at the plate, you know, waged on, uh, I thought, man, it'd be just nice to give him some help and knock him down to, like, 80 games you only need from him versus, you know, you maybe still want him there, but uh, just to be able to sit him when you need to sit him, you know, when the matchup isn't right or, you know, if he's getting worn down, that sort of thing. Uh, McCann, I'm kind of fascinated by just because, as you mentioned, like whenever he's been good enough to play, he's played a ton. You know, <laughs> and yeah, the the Tigers never really explored him as somebody who could play less. They just kind of ran him out there because they had nobody behind him. And, uh, you know, he had a good, he had, he had like a one and a half good years. Then the rest were kind of ugly, but they still played him. And so I've wondered what it would be like, you know, if he did play 60 games or so, and just would that be, Better for him, worse, just uh, not having to expose him for that much, and maybe we'll get our chance here. Yeah, looking back at Tyler Flowers, when A.J. Brzezinski was the primary catcher, in 2011, Flowers only played 38 games. In 2012, Flowers only played 52 games, backing up A.J. Brzezinski. Yeah. Now, Flowers is making league minimum. The White Sox are paying James McCann more than $5 million this upcoming season. Yeah, I still think that they appreciate the depth, but uh, I think Grandal, they signed him to, <laughs> they signed him for everything he brings, which is durability, impact, and also just his ability to handle a wide range of uh, pitchers. Uh, that's, I think, what's going to be fun for me to watch with McCann is it seems like the Grandal signing did wake him up to where he realized maybe just kind of registered uh, how big of a... Uh, um, disparity there was in his framing numbers between him and an average catcher, or in Grandal's case, a very good one uh, behind the plate. And it seems like he took it more seriously or just 
had it clarified for him and he said like he just it didn't it hadn't registered to him or it hadn't he hadn't made sense of it or the metrics didn't co- kind of convert into understanding and now it seems like it's a lot clearer and maybe that's just uh you know his job being taken away from him uh makes everything a lot easier to see or uh just make maybe makes you uh maybe motivates him to push through even if he doesn't understand it or kind of understand how he'll get better and just try to do it with and and seeing if uh uh the work generates understanding. You know, maybe it's the, you know, he went about the order incorrectly. But uh, either way, it seems like uh, that did uh, appear on his radar in a serious way. And that usually shows up like within a month or so, especially, uh, you know, once you get enough starts under your belt to where, uh, you know, if the framing is better, we should be able to know it by like mid-May or so. So that's Grundahl and that's McCann. The battle for the third catcher spot for the Chicago White Sox is interesting because it possibly could be the 26th man. Uh, I'm not certain that that's going to be the case. I don't know if the White Sox are going to carry three catchers, Uh, but something, you know, during uh, the weekend, uh, one of the beat reporters asked Rick Hahn about your Mercedes and Rick Hahn said, quote, Yerman can hit all Yerman does is hit at every level he goes to. Han also praised Mercedes as a pretty good receiver as a catcher, both from what the catch coaches have said and based on some of the outside metrics. Uh, I think your Mercedes is a better receiver than Zach Collins, according to some of the outside metrics that they may be alluding to, Jim. I did not fact check that, so if I'm wrong. Yeah, like, yep. No, he's actually above, uh, a little bit above average. His numbers are in the black when you look at baseball prospectuses, uh, minor league framing stats. So what what are we doing here then? Like, why why am I spending time talking about Zach Collins? If your Mercedes is a better hitter and he's a better receiver, why are we spending time talking about Zach Collins ever? Well, uh, with Mercedes, he really doesn't move well behind the plate. Like, his blocking is bad. And Collins isn't that great a blocker, but yeah, Mercedes, when you watch him, uh, he does not move well behind the plate. And it's... Uh, yeah, either pass balls or just your ricochets. He is not, uh, yeah, the, the absorption is lacking when it comes to that. Also, uh, I think there's been some, yeah, from what I understand, what I can glean from, uh, reports. I think James Fegan was the one who said most of that, like this, I think his game calling isn't that great. Uh, also, you know, when you look at just the way he swings, uh, it's, uh, he leaves nothing to the imagination with a swing. Uh, the, the, when you look at his numbers, the walks and strikeouts, like the walks are, yeah, he doesn't walk much, uh, not like an e- extreme aggressiveness, but like he doesn't walk much. Doesn't strike out all that much either for as much power as he hits for, but for some reason, scouts don't really like the swing. I think it just, perhaps they think it's just too much and too easily exploitable by, uh, you know, upper level pitching, especially in the major leagues. Um, but, you know, given how well he hits in, Birmingham when only Luis Robert was hitting and then given how well he hit in Charlotte it seems like there's reason to give him at least an audition uh and uh also just to see like I guess give him a few starts just to understand like what he looks like as a catcher catching major league stuff I think there you know Rick Hahn might be a little bit complimentary towards Mercedes because he would be tradable uh, if the White Sox have, you know, if, if Collins somehow does improve enough to be a feasible backup catcher, you know, with the ability to hit for more, uh, then maybe Mercedes will be dealt and you don't really want to slag Mercedes until, uh, uh, it comes down to playing them or 
abandoning him. <laughs> you might have to be a little bit more realistic with your assessment, but for the time being, it, it makes all the sense in the world to say nice things while uh, his performances said that, and uh, while some of the numbers, at least what they're receiving, uh, it does vouch for him there. I'm going to be interested to see on how manager Wes Helms divvies up playing time if both Zach Collins and your Mercedes are in Charlotte. Yeah. Uh, on who's getting those starts. I still think it'll be Collins just because... I agree. Yeah, ideally, I think Collins, if he could start like as a backup or you know, if he could start behind the plate and also be a credible first base DH guy, that's pretty useful. It is. And that's why we're still talking about him is that there's still that hope. Yeah. But if, if the metrics are coming back that Mercedes is a better receiver, Mercedes is a better hitter, and Collins is still not helping himself on the blocking aspect, then I don't know what the White Sox are doing here anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Just go find a new well, team for Zach Collins then. Yeah. And I think with Mercedes too, it's, you know, as the White Sox pitching staff evolves and, and, uh, or I should say pitching staff, pitching program evolves like the, uh, you know, from the top down, uh, not just being Don Cooper, but also being Don Cooper plus analytics and having more people involved like Everett Tiford and so forth in the whole building a pitcher thing. I wonder if that information will change how catchers game plan and perhaps, you know, that's something where uh, a catcher can distinguish himself or improve as a game caller as information becomes less about feel and more about um, just taking the time to learn what makes a pitcher work. I just, I'm at the point with both Mercedes and Collins that I think one of them needs to get moved for the White Sox to patch up roster holes in Chicago. I, I do think that you're just wasting either's time keeping them at AAA for all of 2020, Jim. Yeah, I think with McCann, though, being a free agent at the end of the year, it does make sense, even if it inconveniences uh, both of them, Collins and Mercedes, to uh, not answer the question for another year. But I guess, but if they don't improve defensively, I still don't like him as a backup. And also, I just don't see him being that... Yeah, I just don't see him being worth that much in a trade. So it just becomes more a matter of just kind of moving guys to move guys, so... It doesn't seem like a crisis to me right now or any kind of... Oh, you're right. I, I think it's I think it's incumbent on... Well, I think you know Mercedes has done enough to earn a look in Chicago just to see how his approach works against Major League Pitching because it could be... Right. Like, he could be a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's, an, there's an outside chance to where he just has this unique feel for hitting that uh, creates some thunder and he just... Uh, he plays a lot of joy and I can see him being a fan favorite and... Uh, a big hit in the 108 and everything like that. And, and you like having him around. So I think he's deserved that shot. And I think it'd be a waste of like the year comes and goes and he just hasn't earned a, you know, good hundred plate appearances or so in Chicago, uh, unless it like the first 50 are a disaster. Uh, but when it comes to kind of the big picture, I think it's incumbent on one of them to prove their worth. Uh, they still need to prove that they're worth uh, uh, being accommodated. Well, hopefully Grandal and McCann are healthy for all of 2020, and we don't have to worry about who's the third catcher for the White Sox. But at least the White Sox have some depth at catching. So that is the good news. And with Mercedes and Collins, they go four deep. If you still believe in Sebi Savala, he hit a home run on Sunday. The White Sox go five deep at the catching position. But with Grandal and McCann, this is the best catching tandem the White Sox have had 
in a very long time, possibly ever, especially since we've been podcasting seven years together, Jim. I just really hope that this tandem works out a lot better than Alex Avila and Diarno Navarro. I'm trying to think like maybe the Charles Johnson year might have been the best catching year that they had. But uh, uh, going back to tie up a loose end when it comes to the uh, top 10 wins above replacements, uh, Jim Tomey was 11th and Jermaine Dye was 12th in 2006. That was the year I was thinking of where one of them might have been able to crack the top 10. Right. They just missed it. They did miss it. Yeah, I have that note in my notebook. You were close. You were close. But no cigar, Jim. Yep. Albert Bell, 1998. Hopefully, that'll change to Yasmani Grandal and Yoan Mikata and Luis Robert in 2020. Let's make it happen, boys. Uh, But anyways, that's the catcher's preview. Jim and I are going to take a quick break. But coming up next, we continue our 2020 position previews with a look at second and first base. I fly often. As a matter of fact, I'm going to be flying out of O'Hare this week. My girlfriend Kim, she flies every week for work. And you might too. Living in Chicago, having to deal with traffic, getting to O'Hare can be a pain. And you know security lines are always long, and the stress builds because you don't want to suffer from I-might-miss-my-flight anxiety. That's why I'm excited about our newest sponsor, Clear. A new way to check in at the airport, stadiums, and other venues using your eyes and fingertips. Here's how it works. You create your account online before getting to the airport at clearme.com. The clear kiosks are in terminals one and two at O'Hare. They scan your ID, fingers, and eyes, which is a five-minute process. Then a clear ambassador helps you through security, in which you only have to show your boarding pass to the TSA folks. Kim used clear in San Francisco when she was running late because they had train issues. Thanks to Clear, she was able to quickly check in and get through security just in time for her boarding group was called for the flight back home to Chicago. Clear bailed her out from missing her flight home. With your Clear account, it works in 65 airports, plus it's being introduced in stadiums and venues across the country, and that list continues to grow every single day. If you're traveling with your family, up to three family members can be added at a discounted rate, and kids under 18 are free when you're traveling with a Clear member. So, if you are a road warrior, Clear will really come in handy when going on vacations with the family. It also works great with pre-check. And right now, listeners of Socks Machine Podcast can get their first two months of Clear for free. Go to clearme.com slash socksmachine and use our promo code Sox Machine. That's C L E A R M E dot com slash Sox Machine and use our promo code Sox Machine for your free two months of clear. Yomer Sanchez won the American League Gold Glove last year for his outstanding fielding as the White Sox second baseman. He's fighting for a job in San Francisco for the 2020 season. Why? Because his bat is way below league average. And in the American League, where teams are hitting 300-plus home runs a season, the White Sox need more offense. Plus, Sanchez was going to get a pay raise, and the front office thought $6 million was too much. Now we enter spring training with a battle of who will start at second base. It wasn't long ago we had this discussion with Sanchez battling Micah Johnson. Ah, the good old days. 
No, this time it's between three players on who will be the White Sox opening day second baseman, Louis Garcia, Danny Mendek, or Nick Madrigal. Now, Garcia just got himself a new contract that pays him $3.25 million the next two seasons. There is a buyout option for the White Sox for the 2021 season that they could buy out his contract for $250,000. If Garcia is useful, the White Sox don't have to worry about an arbitration raise because they already got Garcia locked in for the 2021 season. That's the benefit for the White Sox. And Garcia, he knows that if he's good, he's making $3.25 million next year. But is Garcia the White Sox starting second baseman on opening day? Is it Danny Mendek? Or will the White Sox finally forego service time manipulation and give Nick Magical a fair chance of winning the job out of camp? Let's start there, Jim, when it comes to the second base preview for 2020. Do you think Magical will be allowed to win the starting job for opening day out of camp? Does that mean he's he doesn't have to sign a contract extension before he does? Correct. I'm thinking, based on the way they're promoting Larry Garcia as the first line of defense at second base, I would say no. Are you disappointed with that answer? A little bit. Not as disappointed as I was going to be with Robert if he encountered the same thing or with Eloy Jimenez, uh, just because... You know, Magical's lack of power makes me think like it's going to take a while for him to uh, start scaring major league pitchers and really make an impact. I think with, you know, Jimenez, given the impact we thought he might make immediately, that didn't quite happen. But like just you could picture him hitting like 10 homers in April, uh, just kind of breaking out in a, a crazy way and White Sox missing out on that. Same thing with Robert. He's got enough power and uh, you know defense in center field and just the motor he has to create some really unique I guess a shape of offense uh, that White Sox haven't had in center. Uh, I think with Madrigal, you know, you're going to be, I think he can hit 270. It's just a matter of whether he hits 270 and slugs 270 or, you know, kind of has an OBP of like 290 uh, just because it takes a while for pitchers to be afraid of him. Just uh, uh, the kind of damage he can do. So that's why I'm, I'm not, uh, I think the first like three weeks of the season or four weeks, whatever it is, uh, I don't know if you'd be able to tell much of a difference between Larry and uh, Mendick and Magical at that point. So when I go to Louisville in late April, the Charlotte Knights are going to be in town. That Friday night, I'm going to go see Reed Detmers start a game for MLB draft coverage. But that Saturday, I'm planning to go see the Charlotte Knights face the Louisville Bats. Am I going to see Nick Magical as a second baseman for the Charlotte Knights in late April? Uh, I would, like, the White Sox have surprised me with the way they've gone about extensions, especially after they gave Robert more money than they gave Eloy, based on his track record being shorter and health being a bigger issue. I didn't think they're going to go as far as they went to sign Robert. I could see, not not that Madrigal is going to make that kind of money because he doesn't project to make all that much, or isn't that big of a threat in arbitration the way that uh, Jimenez is, Uh, but... I can see the White Sox poning up if they want to, just based on the fact they've done it twice. Like at that point, you know, you can't uh, fool me again. <laughs> so I think I'll say like, uh, uh, you know, saying 50-50 is a cop-out, but it's kind of how I feel on that. Uh, if the White Sox did either, it just would, I think I would have the same reaction in terms of surprise. Let's say it wasn't a factor. If service time manipulation, new contract was not a factor. And if you just went based on pure talent... 
is Nick Magical the best second baseman the White Sox have at camp? Yeah, I, or I think enough to give him the job now. Like he might not be like say if the season was a month long, uh, you know, just April first, April thirtieth. You know, maybe he's not the best second base option just because Larry's done it before for stretches and Mendick, you know, had a good September. He's got like a month head start on seeing what major league pitching looks like. So uh, you wouldn't be able to tell much of a difference or maybe Magical's behind, but just uh, getting him involved, uh, letting him figure it out, you know, not because, you know, he could have the same problem in May that he has in April. You know, if he's just, if it's a matter of seeing major league pitching and just having to adjust, it may as well get that out of the way immediately. So it's worth giving him the job. I think I think by the end of the season, he'll be the best option. So even if he's maybe the second best option to start the season, it's worth gutting through that. And that's how I feel. I think Nick Magical should be the White Sox starting second baseman. If you're going to spend the fourth overall pick on him, and he performed well last year offensively, and I think defensively, he's better than Garcia and Mendek at the position, and he may be as close as the level of defense that Yomer Sanchez provided to the White Sox last year. And again, Sanchez won a gold glove. I just say start the year with Nick Magical, bat him ninth. So you're not having to rely so much on his bat. And hopefully he plays good enough defense to help the team win until his bat comes around and he gets used to facing major league starting pitching. I think that's the way the White Sox should go. But with Garcia getting this new contract, do you think Garcia's new contract plays a factor in Rick Hahn and Rick Renteria's decision-making on who the opening day second baseman will be, Jim? No, I don't think so. I think that's merely just to avoid a Yolmer Sanchez situation to where he just becomes unnecessarily expensive. I think you know him seeing what happened to Yolmer in the open market, it wasn't Yolmer's fault, just the way the arbitration structure worked, that he, he was going to be worth an amount of money that no team would pay him. I think Larry sees the same thing, especially like if he only plays 70 games or so. So it's just worth, you know, him having the, either the security of an extra season or, you know, an extra $250,000 for his trouble. So I think that's it just purely protecting him from that fate. Uh, with Magical, I can see, you know, given that he's not going to be, or, or doesn't project to be a monster in arbitration. I mean, arbitration does reward batting average. So there's a chance that he's not cheap, uh, but you know you, you might not have the breakout uh, possibility that Robert and Jimenez has, where you like fill up multiple stat lines or multiple categories, I should say. Um, I can see in this case where, say, if Larry gets hurt or Mendick just looks overmatched, and just where it becomes abundantly clear that Magical is the best option, I can see them uh, being willing to bite the bullet and say hey, let's give him, you know, opening day start just because he's the best of what we have. And uh, it's not really worth nickel and diming him for uh, what could be a promising start to the season. So uh, I think it's more a matter of if like Larry shows up and balls out and same thing with uh, Mendick to where they both look good and they both earn shots in the past and Madrigal is not in great shape, then maybe they don't want to put that pressure on him. So there, they could be, uh, I wouldn't be entirely cynical about this the way that everybody had a right to be cynical about the way Eloy was handled. Uh, but I would say it, it plays a part, but not entirely. And I agree with you. I think the spring training performance will have some weight to it. I mean, if Danny Mendick looks sharper and he just looks better prepared, 
that Nick Magical does during spring training, then yeah, if Mendick looks better than Magical, then Mendick has earned that job. Or if Garcia looks better than the other two, then Garcia's your starting second baseman and Mendick's sitting on the bench while Magical starts year in AAA. I, I guess I'm just I'm confident that Nick Magical is going to have a strong spring training. And I am confident that Magical is going to look better at the position than Danny Mendick and Lurie Garcia. But if money is a factor and the White Sox can't get a contract extension with Nick Magical and they decide to set him down to Charlotte, out of Lurie Garcia or Danny Mendick, I know we I asked you this question uh, you know, a couple months ago. Are you still feeling that Danny Mendick should get that nod then at starting second base and still keep Lurie Garcia as a super utility guy. Yeah, I, I would like to see that, but I, I think the White Sox do like what Garcia brings to the table. I mean, he, he, for all his flaws as a player, uh, especially just when it comes to play discipline, he does have a knack for, yeah, and this is a bit results-based, but making things happen. Like he scored 93 runs last year, which is an unusual amount for his on-base percentage. He just, he runs the base as well. He gets on base... Yeah, not a lot, but he hits well enough to where like the way he gets on base counts a little bit more than like his is like a 318 on base percentage. But if you're hitting 290, it feels a bit more productive than somebody who hits 260 and gets on base 36 uh, 318. So yeah, it's just uh, it's an unusual brand of baseball. But I think uh, you know, he's proven enough. He's been in enough big moments to where, and I, I think uh, also Rick Renteria trusts him a little bit at the top of the order and. and uh, the leadoff spot doesn't seem to phase him for better or for worse. He just kind of plays his brand of baseball wherever he plays, um, which is not a good thing in the big picture for the White Sox when it comes to lineup construction. But I think if you're trying to get by for uh, a few weeks at a time while you evaluate younger players who are trying to figure it out, he's not a guy, bad guy to plug in there. So I can see the familiarity there just being a big enough draw to where they play him there, they start him leadoff, or maybe they run Tim Anderson out there against lefties and just kind of patch together a leadoff spot around Mankata batting second um, and then waiting for Magical, just that situation to play out. Considering everything, if you had to make a guess right now, on opening day, who is the White Sox starting second baseman? I'm going to say Magical. I like it. I like it, Jim. Yeah, it's it's like a plurality. It's not a strong majority, but I can see him getting... In the mix multiple ways. Like, certainly if he signs a contract extension, it's it's done. Right. You know, he's the guy. Uh, so there's that. And then just uh, his track record is of health is pretty good, um, aside from the one, you know, the the hit by pitch. But he's, he's been healthy and productive everywhere else that wasn't uh, kind of a fluke pitch. And, uh, you know, there's a chance he could just outplay him. So I think there are enough ways for him to get involved to where... I'm going to be optimistic and say it makes enough sense for the White Sox to start them too and just try to put their entire effort into winning games in April to make things interesting. If Magical is the starting second baseman, is Mendick on the bench? I could see him being the odd man out if Laori is there and they want, you know, the the fourth outfielder being a defensive ace. I could see Angle being there. And if they want... Like the combination of defense and bats, I could see them going with Angle and Mercedes. Uh, The nice thing about the situation is that Mercedes and Mendick, they both have options. So you can rotate them in and out and see fit. So I could see him being the odd man out to start the season. They give um, Mercedes some at-bats to kind of 
you know, partially for Mercedes, partially to have him there to be able to flex James McCann in different situations as well and not just leave him, you know, being a 40-game-a-year guy. Uh, I can see that being the case. So in that sense, I think Mendick is probably better off being in, well, not he's not better off, but the White Sox are better off with Mendick being in AAA, having Mercedes there, and then uh, I could see them rotating in and out, though, over the course of the season. And again, we'll break that down as spring training comes to a close and we preview the upcoming season for the White Sox at opening day week and see on how the 26-man roster shakes. That That's where, to me, it's interesting because if Nick Magical is the starting second baseman and you, you have McCann as your backup catcher and you have Lurie Garcia on the bench, is Danny Mendek that 26 guy just in case if Mikata pulls a hamstring, you got somebody who can play third base in an emergency situation? I don't know if Lurie Garcia could play third base. I don't know if I've ever seen him play third base. I don't even know if you want to see him play third base. But that's kind of where my head is at because if you need a fourth outfielder, I think Lurie Garcia could serve that role. Adam Engel would be a better option, at least defensively for sure. But I'm wondering if if Anderson rolls an ankle and Mikado pulls a hamstring during the game, who is filling in for those guys? And I wonder if that's Danny Mendick's responsibility. Yeah, Lauri has played 23 games at third. It's his least. Oh, really? It's his least popular position. It goes okay. uh, left fi- or center field, left field, right field, second, short, third. So, All right. Well, unless you count pitcher. <laughs> Got it. He's made two appearances there. But yeah, so it, he has played there. I think they'd trust him for emergency or backup situation or say like a mid-game exit. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, it'd also be a case where, you know, hopefully Mankata has been paying attention to his hamstrings and trying to solve that problem. But uh, last year they tried to nurse him through some situations. So I think if it is a short bench or like, you know, the kind of situation where they're not entirely sure that Mankata will be able to make it through a game, maybe that's where Mendick comes into the mix. Well, we'll again, we'll see on how the 26 man shakes out. That's going to be a very popular talking point as spring training comes to a close later in March. And again, we'll be tracking that once we get an opportunity to actually watch the game. So that's second base. Let's move over to first base to conclude this week's position previews for the 2020 season. And when you talk about first base, it's mostly about Jose Abreu. He's entering his seventh season with the Chicago White Sox in 2020. He just signed a three-year $50 million deal in the offseason. So he's sticking around until after the 2022 season. Jose Abreu led the American League in RBIs with 123 last year, but the advanced metrics suggest that he's now in the decline phase of his career. His weighted runs created plus was just 117, so Abreu was 17% better than league average, which is the same value as Eric Thames. Thames signed a two-year, $7 million contract with the Washington Nationals, and I think it's very fair to say that if Jose Abreu tested the market, no team was going to give him three years, $50 million this last offseason. Compared to the other first baseman in the major leagues, Abreu's 117 weighted runs created plus ranked 11th out of 20 qualified first basemen. His 1.9 war on Fangraphs.com was 14th out of 20th. His slugging was 11th out of 20th. His walk rate was 19th out of 20th. And his base running runs was negative 5.3, which means he cost the White Sox five runs last year in just his base running. 
And that was also 19th out of 20th for qualified major league first baseman. This is painful for me to point out because I love watching Jose Abreu hit. And most of you listening to this are just like me. We love Jose Abreu. And I think he is the heart and soul of the Chicago White Sox ball club. In a way, I have to ignore the advanced metrics, Jim, and count on the subjective parts of Abreu's game. But I know that I'm digging my head into the sand, and it wasn't long ago we did this same thing for Paul Konerko. So Jim, is 30 homers, 100 RBIs, good enough production from Jose Abreu in 2020 if his overall value is just one and a half war? Yeah, I I think with first baseman going by wins above replacement alone is a little bit uh, unfair just because they're, especially with a a guy like Abreu's body. uh, And Canerco had the same thing, like even in Canerco's peak, like there's only so much he could provide just because of his foot speed. Uh, You're hampering him from being a plus defender and uh, adding value on the base paths. Um, And and I I think the league uh, to a certain degree would look at Abreu the same way, like, you know, comparing him to like other first basemen who are theoretically worth the same amount of money. I think Abreu is just, you know, having been the guy in the lineup for six years and, and even, you know, with all his flaws and running hot and cold at times, like he still shows up, he's still hundred RBI guy, 30 Homer guy. And I think that does matter to a certain degree, just because he's able to play in the lineup, except for the one year we had all the weird groin stuff. <laughs> I think, uh, uh, he's been, he's been reliable. And I think there is value in that, uh, that you know, wins above replacement does not capture entirely. So I think when it comes to first baseman, I kind of go more by feel than the number in that regard, just because unless it's someone like Albert Pujols in his prime, uh, the average first baseman just doesn't get rewarded. And somebody's got to play the position. Like you, you just got to have somebody there. Same thing with DH. Like, you know, DH might never, uh, you know, be a seven wins above replacement guy. But if you have a good one, uh, like, uh, like say Big Poppy, uh, then yeah, you just keep him forever so that's my like opinion there but i think when it comes to like production you know he had a really weird season where he led the league in rbis while you know the the other numbers weren't that remarkable and the guys hitting ahead of him uh you know makata was good but larry wasn't uh, by standard measures of getting on base but for whatever reason just there was a good combination that worked well together and uh bray was really good with runners in scoring position and so forth and just good uh timing on his hits um but yeah, I think when it comes to the big picture, I could see him you know, running the same season out there where he's the same kind of hitter. He hits 33 homers, but only drives in like 95 just because uh, the luck happens to dry up a bit and uh, you know just the production isn't there. I think the thing that scares me most is just the sub-300 OBP against righties. So it was a 290, uh, 299 OBP last year, 772 OPS. And if that slides further, like if that's not like something he can hold while still mashing lefties, but if that's, uh, you know, that signals a further decline, then that's a lot tougher to, I guess, putting a plug in the middle of an order and expect him to deliver on accounts. I think that's when you can feel the, the decline more. So I think that's my biggest concern with him individually. I hope Manjaric Renteria has enough confidence that if Eloy Jimenez is the much better hitter in 2020, that he's not afraid to have Jimenez bat third and drop Abreu in the order. I don't know if he would do that. I'm expecting Jose Abreu 
to be the White Sox number three hitter because that's what he's been since he's been with the White Sox, except for that period of time where they were flirting with him being the number two hitter, which I loved, um, but that was very short period of time. Uh, yeah, that's just how I feel as far as Ibreu's presence in the lineup to start the year is he's going to be the number three hitter. But I just hope that as he continues down the decline phase of his career, and again, we went through this with Paul Konerko, that I hope that Rick Retoria or whoever manages the White Sox is going to be comfortable having Abreu bat fifth or maybe even lower in the lineup if it comes to be that, yeah, he can still hit 30 homers and he can still drive in 100 RBIs, but he's not one of your three best hitters in the lineup. Yeah, I could see him being, you know, the reputation he had in Cuba before he came to the States and and what he's done since uh, just dropping into a uh, major league lineup, winning rookie of the year, top five finish MVP uh, makes me think like he could have a decline phase. That's really drawn out. And you always feel like he's on the verge of collapse just because he doesn't walk that much. And the strikeouts are up there. Uh, And sometimes he gets in the funks where he hits the ball on the ground too much but just never quite caves in because he just has a feel for hitting and adjusting a swing and knowing what pitchers are trying to do for him, uh, do to him and eventually figuring out a solution for those attacks. But uh, like, like you said, I think uh, ideally as the lineup changes and you have uh, you know, Jimenez and you have uh, Robert and Mancata, I'm hoping by the end of like, or by the middle of say 2021, all three of those guys are better hitters than Abreu for good reasons. Uh, and then maybe like, whether it's, uh, you know, Grandall, Zach Collins, you know, some, you know, Mookie Betts, if you want to, you know, add him in there, like they, they find some other like fourth better bet that isn't Edwin Carnacion to where like, you can have a break, still playing first base and like hitting fifth or sixth and being somebody comes in like after the heart of the order and just cleans up what's left. Like, <laughs> like a kind of like a second cleanup guy in a way, like just more a matter of like, if this rally's still going, Here's a guy who can put the ball over the fence and tack on a couple more. Right. And I think that'd be a great role for him. I know a lot of people listen to the show and they read our work on Sox Machine because they're always asking the questions of why is X happening? And we do use advanced metrics quite often to try to tell the story and how players are performing. But when it comes to first base in 2020 and 2021 and 2022, as long as Jose Abreu is around... I'm just going to have to ignore the advanced metrics, Jim, because it's just not going to line up. The counting stats are going to look good, and everyone's going to be happy with his 30 homers, 100 RBIs, and say he's having a really good season, but the advanced metrics are going to be showing the flashing red light, that warning, warning, decline, decline. And uh, we're just going to have to ignore that, that warning light for a couple more seasons one until Andrew Vaughn is ready to be the everyday first baseman for the White Sox and uh when when it comes off when Abreu drives off the cliff but hopefully it's not the same drive off the cliff that Paul Kodirko had in his last two years of his career uh which honestly was kind of brutal to watch one of your heroes just collapse and not be useful at all so that's at least Jose Abreu. Now, Edwin Carnacion played 57 games at first base last year, Jim. And yes, Monte Grandal played 20 games for the Brewers at first base. Is that the rotation that we could see in 2020? Is Abreu, Encarnacion, and Grandal at first base for the White Sox? 
Uh, I, I think ideally I'd like to see the White Sox just kind of stick to a simple plan early with Abreu and Encarnacion and just let Grandal catch, especially you know, trying to get pitchers off to a good start. But uh, I guess when it comes to all the White Sox additions, I think I'm the most bearish on Encarnacion just because of his age and uh, the you know, the oblique strain he had. Uh, and then also just the pop-ups he's hitting, that's kind of a warning light to me that just... Uh, just a declining hitter, bat speed slowing down, has to sell out for more homers. He might hit 30 homers, but he might only hit like 18 doubles and hit 230 and just make a lot of empty outs uh, that you know, have no chance of being productive because they're hit straight up in the air. And uh, it's not a whole lot of fun, and, and maybe the White Sox just kind of have to move on or diminish his playing time you know, going into the second half of the season. I think when it comes to the outcomes, I understand like Nomar Mazzara has had a, you know, he hasn't done anything on the level of Encarnacion yet, but I think when it comes to contributing to the 2020 team, I think I'm feel a little bit better about Mazzara than Encarnacion. But uh, and until that shows up, uh, and, and I think, you know, given what he did last year, maybe he can hold that line for one more year. Uh, you know, start him, you know, have him go out, uh, you know, play every day at DH, you know, or not every day at DH, but say like, five out of seven starts at DH, uh, you know, rotate him in and out to, uh, you know, keep healthy. And if he's hitting and if a is hitting, then just let Grandall catch. I think that's uh, kind of how I'd play it. Again, with Encarnacion, just get just 30 homers. Just I don't, if he only plays 90 games this year, I still have a feeling he could hit 30 homers for the White Sox. He played what? 107 games last year and he hit 34. Uh, that's all I'm hoping for with Edwin yeah. Encarnacion is just get the 30 homers. I'm not expecting big things offensively for him. No, I think it's fair. Uh, I should say I am expecting 30 homers. That is a big thing. Advanced metric wise offensively. I'm not expecting Edwin Encarnacion to be a world beater. He is here to hit 30 plus homers. Yeah. For the White Sox and and I, I like the signing itself. Like I'd say, I'm not slagging the signing just because he was there. He makes sense for the roster. Um, and you know, it's a one year deal and, and there's no buyout in the second year, which is unusual. So there's a, you know, for whatever reason, it doesn't work out. And he, he kind of, uh, fulfills the worst case scenario. I think I am, I'm kind of running in my mind. Uh, there's really no harm in trying it out. So I, I like the signing, uh, just hope that the White Sox don't get too attached in case, uh, you know, he looks like a 38 year old, (laughs) which is fair, you know, like that. He should be allowed to age. Right. I agree with you. He is here until Andrew Vaughn is ready. That's how I feel about Edwin Encarnacion. So we'll see how Vaughn does in 2020. And that will do it for the position previews for this week. Next week, we'll preview the shortstop and third base positions on the Sox Machine podcast. Those would be fun conversations with Tim Anderson and Yohan Mikata involved. But coming up next, it's your guys' questions in P.O. Socks. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. 
Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks. We submitted your questions to us via Twitter, tweeting them to us at Socks Machine, or for those that help support the site and the show by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. We got some really good questions this week, Jim, in the mailbag. And the first question that we have comes from Johan Dabrinsky. And Johan's asking, Chuck Garfine's article about Yasil Puig this week. Am I reading between the lines correctly and thinking the current Cuban players on the team do not want him around? Well, first of all, let me just go back in case anybody who's yelling at the podcast. Encarnacion is 37, not 38. I misspoke in that regard. So uh, just let me ease your mind in case that was uh, grating <laughs> on you. When it comes to... Uh, the Puig story, uh, in case you didn't see it, it was a Chuck Garfine story in NBC Sports uh, Chicago. Um, and Abreu uh, said nice things about Puig. And then he said, uh, yeah, like he started out saying uh, they're asking him about uh, Puig still being available. And he said, yes, I am surprised. That's one of those things that happen that you don't understand. A guy with his talent, he's still so young. He doesn't have a team yet. It's a surprise. I'm confident he's going to find something this year. But then uh, a couple paragraphs later, when asked about like the fit on the White Sox, he says, I don't think he would be a good fit here. This is all through a translator. I don't think he would be a good fit here. Don't get me wrong. He has a lot of talent, but we're full. Our outfield is looking great with Nomar, Eloy, and Robert. There's no reason for us to make more moves in that area of our team. He's someone who would fit in with any major league ball club because he has the talent to help any of those teams. So, yeah, just a, a bit of a whiplash there when it comes to uh, how you think it's going to go. Um, but it does jibe with how I've kind of felt about the Abreu Puig relationship. I've talked about that before where it just feels like they get along, they're cordial, and I think they have respect for each other and, and Abreu respects Puig because they come from the same background. And I think when you make that same harrowing journey from Cuba to the States, you just probably have to, you know, there's a, there's a brotherhood there, I imagine, uh, and a, a shared background and everything like that. But when it comes to just the responsibility that's laid at Abreu's feet for bringing guys along uh, and, and, you know, he was a big part of the Mankata story and big part with Roberts and Eloy uh, too, you know, to a lesser degree, but he's seen as this big mentor figure and this important uh, fixture in the clubhouse beyond what he produces. And if you saddle him with Puig and he doesn't want to really be a part of that, or doesn't want to be responsible for that, I can totally understand where you're coming from. Like if, if you're, uh, if Puig has this history of being somebody who just occupies a lot of, resources for leadership, be it management or front office or, or people in the clubhouse. I can see the case where, you know, it just, you know, given his production, given that, uh, you know, he's, he hit homers, but his defense has fallen off. You know, the base running really isn't there. Uh, you could see him just kind of being somebody who just hits 30 homers, hits 30 doubles, but doesn't offer a whole lot around that. That uh, you might not want to bring that guy in, especially if you know one of your players is going to be looked to by the public to improve him. <laughs> I could it just being kind of an unpleasant situation where Puig is not producing. Come on, Jose, fix this. This is your job, and and it's not his job. I mean, it's a nice bonus for when you bring in a, a young guy and have a mentor like that, but you shouldn't be saddling a guy you're already expecting to produce and say like, okay, you're also now responsible for. Uh, helping Puig, who just might be his own person and, and just might forever be his own person and might just need the freedom to be his weird self. And maybe the White Sox just 
don't have the bandwidth or don't feel like the playing time is going to be there to put up with that. So it just, uh, you know, it, I think it's, I, I saw the arguments about how it's Puig versus Adam Engel and how nobody should want Adam Engel over Puig. And I just, I really didn't get involved in that conversation just because I don't think it's a money thing. I don't think it's a fit thing. I don't think it's an either or. I just think there's a, uh, a case where bringing him on causes complications for other people or you know, maybe too many other people, especially playing personnel, perhaps that, uh, they just don't feel like the gains are worth what, uh, the complications of my cause. With Chuck Garfine's article, it really does sound like at the winter meetings, the white Sox, on how they're addressing right field. It was, the decision came down to between Yasiel Puig and Omar Mazzara. And they decided to go with Nomar Mazzara. That is a whole different topic that we'll touch on in a couple weeks when we preview the White Sox outfielders when we talk about Nomar Mazzara. But if that was truly the decision between those two and not considering Nicholas Castellanos or Marcelo Zuna, we wasted a lot of time, Jim, <laughs> talking about the possibility <laughs> of Castellanos or Marcelo Zuna. If the White Sox are trying to decide between Yasiel Puig and Noah Mazzara. Yeah, I can see the thing with, uh, you know, Castellanos, I was in they're, they're bad defenders. And Mazzara is like, he's also below average. But he, bad. But, he, but he's not, he's not as bad. And, <laughs> and playing a smaller outfielder, you know, playing a, a smaller normal outfield and just uh, being left-handed, which they needed just like, Probably the, and also being cheap and low acquisition cost and being able to uh, break away from him if just doesn't work out and hopefully Mookie is, right. is a possibility. But just like, you know, for the investment and such, like I don't, you know, it makes enough sense to where it's worth, you know, it was a better fit last year, but for this year, I understand why they did it and why maybe those others weren't, you know, Missouri and Nick got not getting married to, I think with Castellanos and Ozuna, you know, the contracts, they were talking about signing uh, that at the point where they made the decision, it just seems like that's what they were confronting and they just didn't think the others were marriage material. And and that makes sense. Yeah, they didn't want to commit four years to Azuna or Castellanos, and that's what it would have taken. Uh, even though Azuna signed a one-year deal, he, he did accept Cincinnati's four-year deal, and then Cincinnati turned around and signed Nicholas Castellanos to four years. But I did, that's that's the part of the article that I was surprised. Like when I was in San Diego, I did not get that feeling at all that it was between hmm. Yasiel Puig and Nomar Mazzara for the White Sox in right field. And if you guys knew that, congratulations to you. I wasn't thinking that at all. Do you see Yasiel Puig signing with any team before opening day? Well, it's curious that, like, you know, and the other thing is that, you know, the Indians could use them and. They haven't been interested. You even as the price has theoretically come down, and he would be a lot of fun in the Rockies. I think just mm-hmm. the just the atmosphere and just how weird the Rockies are as a team. Uh, he could be a, a needed dose of fun, especially you know after the whole Arenado thing. Uh, that's a case where maybe the situation is toxic enough to where it doesn't really matter about bringing. You don't have anything. You don't. You don't have any harmony to disrupt because there's no harmony. Uh, so I can see that being the case to where, you know, he might, whatever chaos he creates is not, you know, it, it doesn't really register because there's enough other dissonance going on. So maybe that's, uh, that, that seems like the most fun option to me. 
for selfish reasons as a fan, I would love to see Yasiel Puig on the White Sox. But if Rick Renteria is not comfortable, if Jose Abreu is not comfortable, I totally understand your point of view, Jim. And I can understand why the White Sox are staying away after everything they dealt with in 2016. Let's not repeat that chaos in the clubhouse whatsoever. I, I've come to peace with Yessie Puig not coming to the White Sox after Kenny Williams shot it down and Chuck Garfine's report at NBC Sports Chicago. So we can now officially move on. It's not going to happen. So I'm sorry for all those that wanted Yessie Puig with the White Sox. I did too, but it's not going to happen. So, Johan, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew's asking, are there any injury situations that you are monitoring either with concern or with optimism? Well, I, I think the two big ones are Giolito and, uh, or the two Geos, Giolito and Gio Gonzalez. Um, Giolito, like it doesn't seem like he, you know, the, the injury is, uh, you know, the, the chest injury, uh, upper body injury, if you want to use hockey terms, like it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, but just his, you know, previous hamstring injury and lat injury from last year, just the muscle strains, how they pop up. Um, that, that was my biggest thing that I, I thought he needed to improve, uh, when he had that, uh, starting pitcher discussion was that just, I'd like to see him not get bogged down by those minor strains and having him start the season like that is just not an encouraging start. So, uh, I guess my concern is more of a big picture one. I think immediately just Gonzalez having the shoulder issue and that being his, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that hampered him last year. And having seen the other Gonzalez, Miguel Gonzalez, when, when he was the White Sox, like the shoulder thing was the thing to pay attention to with him and eventually just sank him. That's where I think that uh, that's the bigger concern. I think having both of those at the same time is a little bit critical just because the White Sox ideally would love to have Michael Kopech start the season in Charlotte and just allow him to get in every five-day groove against uh, you know real competition, but not ones where wins and losses matter and he can just uh, work through some things and, and take a beating if he needs to just to get the uh, feel back and nobody's hurt by it. Uh, when it comes to like the, the starting pitching plans, if he's needed or if the White Sox don't want to use him in April, even if they need somebody to fill out the rotation, it comes a lot hairier talking about like Bernardo Flores and Ross Detweiler and everybody that ran through last year aside from Dylan Covey is no longer around, but it's... Uh, ideally they would like to get through with their five stars, I think at least through April. And then if you need to break glass and bring in Kopech, that's fine. And then hopefully from there and then on out, you're talking about Bernardo Flores being a, you know, decent audition candidate and having like Dane Dunning, maybe being back by June and rounding into shape to where maybe he can surprise and so forth. So Jonathan Stever, maybe he impresses in double a and becomes somebody worth a couple starts. Uh, Carlos Rodon comes back and maybe he can, you know, take a start here and there. But I think just the first month, especially month, month and a half is going to be critical for having enough starting pitchers above Michael Kopech to really have this rotation be somebody, yeah, be, be something that doesn't sink the White Sox's chance of being a uh, wild card contender, maybe even challenging the twins. If things don't, as many things don't break right for the twins as they did last year. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Bill Wiggins, and Bill's asking the last two years, Tim Anderson has had a great first half with stolen bases, but very poor second half. How come? With his speed, I think he should lead off until Luis Robert or Nick Madrigal prove capable. Well, I, I noticed this too, and I noticed it in 2018, but 
he also had a 251 on base percentage in the second half. Like he, had, he had just had a miserable second half getting on base. So I could see him not wanting to run on the very few opportunities he has to run. So that really didn't, I noticed it, but it also there were other reasons why he wasn't sealing bases last year. He did not have the, his excuse. His, you know, his on-base percentage was actually higher in the second half. Seems like, you know, in both years, he started out hot. In, 20, in 2018, he was 14 for 15. 2019, he was 12 for 12. Then he followed up both those stretches by going three for seven. And then the uh, base running, you know, basically disappeared after, or base stealing really became less of a factor both times. And, you know, he was, his on-base percentage was like 120 points higher second half to second half. So it wasn't a matter of just not having opportunities. I think, you know, it could be one of two things. One is that, uh, it could be a situation to where yeah, as the course of the season drags on and your your body takes a little bit of a beating and you're playing at 90% rather than 100, that base running or base stealing just might be the first thing to go. Uh, maybe it's something he does when he's feeling great and just something he doesn't want to really put his body through if it's uh, if he's not feeling it. Could also be you know kind of a thing where uh, speed does slump a little bit. He's not like a pure base dealer like Juan Pierre was or Scott Pizetnik was to where they do have like weeks or so where they just uh, get thrown out more often than not and they don't have their timing right. They don't have their reads right. Maybe they're not, uh, maybe the league has noticed something that, you know, like kind of like the idea of tipping pitches. They're tipping stealing uh, and they have to figure that out. But then they get back on track. They just uh, shoot or shoot and steal or steal and they just keep doing it until they get back on track. Maybe Anderson isn't quite that kind of base runner or base stealer to where um, he doesn't like running if he's not feeling it. So I could see it being a case where, you know, maybe he just uh, runs when he runs, but then as soon as the losses stop, start piling up, he just starts focusing on other things and, and trying to not uh, be a negative contributor on the base paths. And, and uh, I would like to see him steal more just because it does seem like he's capable of it uh, when he's going well. It's He's the best the White Sox have. Uh, and I would like not to see it like completely disappear the way it has in the second halves. But uh, I think ultimately if he can be, you know, maybe not <laughs> a batting title winner, but if he can bat like 280, get on base, like league average amount of time, like 320, 330, I, I still think uh, stealing 15 and 20 bases with his power is enough uh, to be a positive contributor. I think really when I look at his like overall game, I still think the biggest gains for him really are defensively just cutting down on the unnecessary errors. Even if he's not like a perfect shortstop, like not a gold glove candidate, uh, still cutting down those errors like maybe by 30%, I think is possible. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week in P.O. Sox. Again, if you have a question or topic that you would like us to tackle in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, follow us on Twitter. We are at Sox Machine and help continue supporting our efforts, both in our writing and in the podcast by becoming a friend at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. The 32 team fantasy baseball league has been completely filled, Jim. This is going to be a great experiment of what would happen if Major League Baseball expanded and you just had a complete redraft of the entire league. We are going to find out. So thank you to all of our Patreon supporters who have signed up. This is going to be one hell of a ride we're going to have for fantasy baseball this year. 
but also I'll be making an update to the Major League Baseball draft board. There's some significant news when it comes to the top 2020 Major League Baseball draft uh, as far as some prospects having some key injuries that really shuffles things to the top 15. Uh, and also my thoughts is on some of the mock drafts that are coming out and what I'm hearing about as far as the top prospects and the White Sox interest. That will be coming out for our Patreon supporters on Wednesday. But if you enjoy our work and you want more from us, extra writing and extra podcast content, again, go to patreon.com slash Machine to sign up today. Do you have any other marketing news for Sox Machine this week, Jim? Not yet. But as not, not yet. yet. Hmm. 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 Curious. Hmm. Sounds like something is coming, hmm. but we're not ready to announce it yet. So we'll keep everyone at the edge of your seat for that. Uh, but I do want to make an announcement. I will be on vacation coming up. Greg Nix will be filling in for me on next week's Sox Machine podcast. He did a great job last time. So he'll be filling in next week on Monday show to help preview the shortstop and third base positions and recap the White Sox spring training games along with Jim next week. So you have that to look forward to and it'll be a great time because Greg does an awesome job and I'll be looking forward to that as well as I hop on a cruise ship and uh, take a little break before opening day begins. But now we'll do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. If you have just discovered the show. You can subscribe to the show via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Audioboom.com slash Socks Machine. The Socks Machine Podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.